Hello, I'm Mary Nightingale. Welcome to the Piper podcast, How I Grew My Brand. Piper has spent more than 30 years funding and helping founders and entrepreneurs grow successful consumer brands. And they've identified 71770 as stages in a business which are critical in that brand's growth cycle, where there's a real need for step change. £7 million, £17 million, £70 million in turnover, for example, or even in numbers of employees. In these podcasts, we're going to talk to some of the UK's most dynamic founders and entrepreneurs about the secrets of their success and how they avoid the pitfalls along that 71770 journey. Today, I'm with Ella Mills, who, with her husband Matthew, founded the successful food and lifestyle brand Deliciously Ella. Welcome, Ella. Thank you very much. Now, first of all, there can be hardly anyone out there who doesn't know what Deliciously Ella is, but for those few, explain exactly what you are. Deliciously Ella is a food and lifestyle brand, as you said. Uh, We started originally with a very personal journey that never intended to become a business. Um, I got very unwell when I was at university in 2011. I spent about four months in and out of different hospitals. I was put on all kinds of medications And they didn't really work for me. And it was affecting my autonomic nervous system. So it was affecting my ability to control my heart rate, my um, blood pressure, and then affected my digestion. I had chronic fatigue, lots of secondary infections, all kinds of issues. And after about a year on a whole variety of different drugs, I really hit a rock bottom because they weren't really working. And so at that point, I started to investigate what else I could do. And I started to look at diet and lifestyle and whether or not changes in those spaces could make a difference. Um, couldn't cook, didn't really have any concept of healthy eating. And so I decided I would learn to cook and I would really start putting plants in the middle of my plate. I would try and change my own preconceptions around the fact that that food was boring um, in order to try and actually do it. And a girlfriend of mine said, well, why don't you do it as a blog? Because I was really struggling with my mental health, mostly just because I wasn't doing anything because I couldn't really do anything. So I just spent days and days in bed watching TV. Having dropped out of university at this point? No, I stayed because as most people know, you only end up with about three hours of class a week. (laughs) (laughs) So to be honest, it wasn't that hard. And actually, I wanted to drop out. My boyfriend at the time said, if you drop out now, you will never come back. And I know that will be the start of a very, very downhill spiral. And he was so, so right, because I already felt so alienated and had such a negative Mm. kind of view of myself and felt very useless and kind of that I couldn't do anything and I think if I'd gone home and was just kind of in the countryside with my mum I just don't think that would have helped at least that way I felt like I was trying in Mm. some capacity and so she said why don't you do it as a blog and it was a really good idea because I was as I said really struggling with my mental health at this point and the idea there was it would give me some sense of purpose in my day, so things that I would be learning. So obviously in the grand scheme of what we do now, it's quite small, but I was learning food photography. I was learning about this whole kind of very new online space of sharing, of communicating, this kind of yeah completely new way of communicating. And so that's what I set about doing. And then, of course, learning to cook and learning to create all these recipes. And that's where Delicious Yella came from. And from that point... It transitioned into social media, again, with a personal purpose of the fact that that would motivate me to keep trying things at every meal, to have something to share. And then it was then that the audience really started to pick up and they started to ask for things. So originally it was cooking classes, workshops, supper clubs, kind of events, things that people could get together, that sense of community offline as well as online. And then from that point, it was an app and the app was really the first turning point. 
because that was really my way of kind of testing the water. Like, was there a potential career here for me? Could I do something with it? And um, at this point, I was working on my own. I was just doing delicious yellow from my parents' kitchen. And, um, you know, I think I really felt the app was going to take a long time to to really do anything. But um, overnight, it went to number one in the iTunes store. And that was solely the only marketing we did was just sharing it on our social media channels, our newsletter, our blog. And that was a really interesting moment in understanding the power of social media, which at this point, I think none of us really did because it was so, so new. This was the beginning of 2014. So we weren't really seeing these kind of massive shifts from social media. And from that, I was approached to write a book. And then Delicious Yellow, our first book, came out in January 2015. And that was the kind of moment that everything really changed it I think a lot of people were looking for the kind of resource that I was sharing because that's why I'd created it because I couldn't find it and I don't think I was alone in looking for it and it was really the first thing within this space and it just exploded out of nowhere we sold out books before the book was even published that created a story in itself and it went on to be the fastest selling debut cookbook ever and what really changed is Delicious Yella up until that point was a you know, social media community with a few hundred thousand people really engaged, but relatively small and, you know, relatively niche. And we were, it was, you know, with people just talking directly to you. And at this point, it went into the press and the kind of mainstream media and people start to talk about you and it starts to exist away from your kind of small community. And I met um, Matt, my husband and our business partner, a few months later. And we just started talking about how there was obviously such an opportunity to grow from this social media beginning into a business and start to really create something. And that was that was where it all came from. Fastest ever debut cookbook. Yeah, it had 24 language translations. I mean, it's nuts. It was a New York Times bestseller. I mean, it was honestly like I was 23 when it came out. There was just literally no part of me in the world that thought that was what was about to happen. I want to take you back a little bit to you as a child. Were you an ambitious child? Did you always foresee a great future for yourself? Were you focused? Were you targeted? No, 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 not even a little bit. I've got three siblings. Um, My brother's the eldest, I'm number two. And my brother was always the most focused, intelligent, kind of well-organised and unbelievably well-planned sort of person you'll ever meet in your life. And so I think I'd always grown up looking at that and probably had seen myself maybe as less capable than I probably was as a result of the comparison. Mm. But I never had big ambitions. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I never really saw myself as someone that would do anything like this. I certainly wouldn't have had the confidence to create my own business if I hadn't sort of fallen into it Mm. and it been a bit organic in that sense. So it's quite interesting to have ended up here. Like I, I know... You know, my mum's always, you know, so proud and so supportive. But if, if you asked her honestly, if she thought one of her children would be running their own business, she would not have put me forward for the job. Were you a tricky teenager by any chance, were you? Yeah, I just was very confused, really. I think I just wasn't really sure kind of who I was, what I wanted to do. I felt, probably did feel a little bit in my brother's shadow mm. and just was, you know, I think I was just a little bit lost. And then you found... Through this misfortune of the illness. Exactly. You kind of found your, your, your purpose, I suppose. Totally. So I went to uni, had the two best years, you know, I thought I'd ever had in my life. I felt like I was really meeting the people I wanted to be friends with. I was having an amazing time. And then out of nowhere, this illness happened. And, you know, I remember I was so resentful of it. I was so frustrated with it. I was so kind of 
self-deprecating and sort of cross with myself for, for having this, like when you feel like you're getting everything together. But actually it's ended up, as you said, creating a sense of purpose. And I think the more I understand of it in my own life, but also the more questions I ask to other people, I think that sense of purpose every day creates such a positive impact on your life as a whole, like really having a kind of sense of why you get up every day. And now you really do have reason because you have this incredibly successful business. We call this podcast 71770. No, you don't particularly want to get into the figures, but you know, give me an idea of where your business is at this stage now. Yeah, so it's really been in the last three years now that it's become a sort of business. And that's really, I see it as when Matt and I started working together. And we started really making a plan rather than it being a little bit more reactive. We got up to over 70 employees. We went back down again to 40. We opened three delis because we thought that was the space we wanted to go into. We then decided bricks and mortar weren't for us because we were then scaling up the product side of our business really really intensely so in the last that launched two years ago and in the last two years we've gone into over six thousand stores and we've got over 20 different products now across four different product lines and that's really where the growth in our business has been where the growth continues to be so it's it's exciting so you now find yourself with a husband and and a business partner yeah (laughs) tell me about matthew yeah he's our ceo so he is the official boss um i am our creative director And actually working together has been amazing. Like, of course, it comes with its moments where you think, was this the most romantic idea we've ever had? (laughs) Um, But that being said, honestly, like none of this would have happened without him. Mm. And I've actually had criticism from people when I say that sometimes and people say, oh, it's not kind of female empowerment. It's really self-deprecating, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember the first time I sent out a newsletter from both of us. I just signed it off honestly without even thinking. Love, love, Matt, Ella and Delicious Ella, the Delicious Ella team. And I had this email back from someone that was pages and pages long about how disappointed she felt because I was putting him above me and, you know, how, what a bad example it was. But I'm the first person to say I never would have had the confidence to do what we've done without him. He is the ultimate person for big picture thinking. I'm nervous and I get nervous to put myself out there and I'm nervous. Still. Of, Getting much, 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 much better. Even now, you know, we're talking about expanding internationally. And I said, what happens if it doesn't work? And he was like, well, you know, there's really only one way to know. And, you know, that's just how he looks at it. It's like, let, you know, there's there's no harm in trying anything, basically. So that has been a real game changer, I think, for Delicious Yellow. And I remember when we launched our first product, which was our energy balls, we had talked to Waitrose and we talked to Whole Foods and places like Holland and Barrett and places that, you know, I think we could all feel comfortable was a good market for us. And he said, but, you know, if our aim as a company is to make healthy living available to everyone, then really we need to be in somewhere like Starbucks. And I just laughed and I was like, yeah, sure. Like, obviously, that's the pipe dream. But come on, you know, let's just be real about something. Like, we're very small. We've been a kind of social media company, you know, as Starbucks, just they're not going to take the call. So, like, let's not embarrass ourselves and do it. And obviously, he just didn't listen to me. (laughs) And he went on LinkedIn, he found the MD of Starbucks in the UK at the time, and he just emailed 20 different versions of this guy's email, guessing that one would maybe be right and hopefully get through. One did get through, and he emailed us back within about 30 minutes, saying, I'd love to meet you guys, love what you're doing. And again, I was like, please, you know, it's going to be really embarrassing, I'm going to get laughed out of the room. And Matt was like, no, this is going to be amazing. And then our first hire within this space was the former head of innovation from Innocent, and he'd done a lot of work 
with Starbucks when he was innocent. So he gave us all, we were going together, the three of us, but he was giving us this whole pep talk, you know, they're going to be really tough. You've got to be really ready, you know. And then we got there and they had goodie bags for us. And I was like, this doesn't seem that tough to me. <laughs> this seems pretty friendly. And in the room, he was like, we want it. We want to be the first people to launch it, which meant they needed it within six weeks. We obviously had not factored in that level of scale at this point. But it was just a brilliant example of the way Matt's mindset helps because I would never, ever ever put myself in that position without him and when Delicious Yellow first came out I was very very young and I there was definitely a lot of conversation around like oh it's just this like young food blogger you know and it was quite dismissive and I think I very much got that sense in my head of that's how people saw me so that's how people would see our company. I wonder how difficult it is actually to be the brand in every bit of press I've ever read about you, and I've obviously read quite a lot, yeah. and I'm trying to kind of get a picture of you, it talks about how gorgeous you are and how young you are and how this and how that and your background. So I just wonder how difficult that is sometimes. Matt may be doing a lot of the business decisions, but you are still. Totally. You are, well, you're called Ella for a start. You yes, know? <laughs> exactly. The, the clues in the name, isn't totally. it? Totally. And I'm always the front line as well to yes. our community. And so I run all our social media channels. Any communication basically with our audience and the outside world in general comes through me. And uh, there's amazing parts of that because you see that you're really having a connection with people. You can see you're genuinely having a positive impact on people's lives. But I think learning to remove yourself is also important. And I think the thing I learned, and I feel like I've now embodied, but it took me quite a long time to kind of really take on board, was really trying to divide all criticism into two camps. Obviously, the first being constructive criticism, even if not delivered in the most constructive way. It was genuinely constructive criticism. And I think although none of us ever want to hear constructive criticism when we're excited about something, it is good to understand because it does make things better in the long term and things we can look at and things we can work on or ways I can communicate a message. But then the second half is criticism for the sake of criticism. And I think learning not to be upset or offended about that was really important, I think, for me in order to keep going with what we do because there are, there are times in which you do feel quite kind of... It can be a little bit personal, some of the criticism, and people are resentful because you have a privileged background, which I completely accept. I would never try and shy away from but that doesn't change what we do on a day-to-day basis with our company. It doesn't change trying to share resources to help people eat better. It doesn't change the fact 27% of the UK eat their five a day. We've got to change it. We're trying to give people free resources. And so there's times where you're like, what's the relevance? I suppose it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because you've given the business an identity. Totally. You know, and you are it. You're the living embodiment of someone who looks great and glows with health and all of that stuff. And yet on the downside, you're in the gimlet glare of the tabloids and... and they love to knock people down. No, no, they do. And there's sometimes you read articles. I mean, I remember we've had moments. There was a moment last year. Um, it was just a really weird couple of weeks. And um, my mother-in-law was diagnosed with a um, terminal brain cancer. This is Tessa Jowell, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And she um, had just been in hospital um, having surgery on her tumour. And obviously it was a really difficult, difficult time for the family and then a few, I was staying with my mum because Matt was with his mum in hospital. And a few days later, there were the um, terrorist attack in London Bridge, which is where my dad and my brother lived, where we lived as a family for kind of 15 years. It was literally on our doorstep and, you know, kind of hearing all about that when it was so close to home and my dad and my brother walked there every day. 
And I was staying at my mum's and it had been my birthday between the two in those couple of days. And one of our team had posted something saying, oh, happy birthday, Ella. And it was a picture of me with a cake. And it was from our wedding. And the Daily Mail picked it up and they wrote this whole story about how I put poisonous flowers on my cake and tried to kill all my guests. <laughs> I'm literally not joking. And like Twitter and social media, I mean, Twitter's always worse, but it went nuts for basically people being like, here's this stupid young girl. She's got no idea what she's doing. She's even so stupid that she puts poison on her cake. Just like to add, they were not no. poisonous. The sap of the stems is poisonous. We know that. But there was a moment and you're reading all of this and you're dealing with all this in your personal life and you're like, why have I put myself out yeah. there? And we changed our menus as well. Same week, customers didn't like a new way of doing the menu and you were literally getting hate mail from people and you were just thinking like, gosh, you're so personally vulnerable. And then yeah. when you're dealing with stuff in your personal life, navigating the two is challenging. But that being said, we would never have the business, I don't think we have today, without the personal because it creates a sense of authenticity and the health food space and this kind of plant-based cooking, you know, it's exploding. Like you see massive adverts all over London right now for Iceland's new vegan range. And, you know, you've got really big companies moving into this space. But we have an authenticity of why we do what we do, where it came from. It's genuine. It's a, you know, it's not a transactional relationship with customers. We share so many resources. There's a real why and why we do what we do mm. in helping people live better. And I think our audience understand that and they understand that because it's a personal journey and because you continue to share it as a personal journey. Mm. So mm. as you said, it's a completely a double-edged sword. And I think what I just needed to accept was, you know, that that was always going to happen and just don't read Twitter. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but with the best will in the world and, and you can be sensible and, you know, put it at arm's length and so on, but it means you have no time off. You know, 24-7, you are being Ella. And even with your husband, you're being Ella. You know, there's professional Ella and there's yeah. personal Ella. I, I wonder how you actually get time for personal Ella, private Ella. It's quite rare, to be honest with is you. It? But I think the thing is, and we said it when we started working together, is because we knew that our that this was going to happen. Like, it was really clear. Obviously, we, we'd always been a kind of community-based brand and that was going to continue. And that needed to continue if we wanted to succeed. And, you know, we took some investors on we borrowed money from our parents like we've got a mortgage against our house on it like it feels like we're all in mm. and so there's a, an element of like we've got this opportunity we've taken this responsibility from other people and so for the next few years actually that's what we're going to do because it's helping people it's genuinely creating a life a career that we never would have had otherwise and I think sometimes it's easy to look at it as a sacrifice as a negative thing but actually all the positives that have come out of of it massively outweigh that and you know I think it's so rare that you get an opportunity like we've had with our company. When it moved really from being a community and you yeah. talked about it moved from being a community to being a business when Matt came along how how did that actually happen what decisions were taken to actually change it yeah in it in, in the way it existed? Well do you know the main thing so we still keep community as the kind of heart is what we do and interaction with our community and readers mm. and things like that but what really happened was up until the point Matt and I started working together you know I think to be honest it had been quite reactive you know it was proactive in the blog and social media at that point it was reactive to pe what people wanted they wanted yoga brunches they wanted supper clubs they wanted workshops cooking classes then people were saying well you know it's great the blog it's not that quick you know what about a quicker re 
some easier way to get the recipes. And mm. so there was the app. Then a publisher said, oh, I'd really like to write a book. And I said, okay, well, if I'm going to write a book, I'm probably going to talk, I should talk to a few publishers. So there was, you know, it was proactive in the sense I took someone else's idea and went to meet other people. But, up, you know, it all being kind of working on other people's schedules. So yes, I, it was building something exciting, but how much we owned it and the direction it was traveling on actually you know was a big question and I think that was one of the things that I wasn't enjoying about it you know I never wanted to be a kind of influencer I never wanted Delicious Yellow to be a marketing tool for other people's companies yes we've done a few collaborations with brands I really believe in like Neil's Yard Remedies we did some products with them but we don't just go around advertising people's products on a sponsored post I never wanted to do that and so what was clear is that from that point what we started doing was doing something proactive we said okay yeah. we are going to create our own company on the back of this we're not you know, if we do more books, that's amazing. If we do other interesting collaborations, that's brilliant. But what we're going to do is say, this is what we're doing as a company. We're going to lay out our own plans. And it suddenly felt like we controlled the direction that we were moving in, in a way that the kind of two years before that, I think it had been controlled slightly by which way the wind was blowing. And I think that's also because it was all happening so, so fast. You know, it was kind of each day something new was unraveling. And I hadn't really had a kind of moment to sit down and think gosh we've come a long way what is next you opened the delis yeah and and uh, you alluded to that earlier on you had three of them yeah we had three now one and, and what if i said to you what went wrong i, I imagine you're saying nothing went wrong oh but... lots of things went wrong <laughs> okay so so why why did you decide to, to reduce the delis what yeah. didn't work about them okay so i think one of the biggest issues we've always had is man i yes people and we want to do everything Lots of people said to us, you can't scale up three businesses at once. You can't take this media side of things, you know, the publishing, the app, our podcast, our social media, our events, the kind of community element of it. You can't grow that whilst growing and scaling up a products business. And we just didn't really listen. I think we needed to try it ourselves. And originally we opened the deli pre-products because, again, we were slightly testing the water of whether or not we could move people from an online um, space to an offline space obviously we've done it with the books but you know the majority of sales have been through amazon the app yeah. is still you know you're, you're paying for it but it's still obviously a kind of very digital thing and so you know and then within five days we had 100 yard queues out the door and we both thought oh god what are we going to do because we that was not a little quicker than we expected and this we, was your first deli that was the which first. was where on um seymour place which is we always said right it's Marlebone, of London, but it's it? basically edgeware road and it was basically the cheapest rent we could find in the most convenient location but it was so small really pinched upstairs there's a reason no one else wanted that lease and it was very cheap but we didn't want to take on investors or anything at this point we wanted to learn ourselves you know would this work would this not work and, if and it what didn't, year was this so this was um we took the lease middle of 2015 and we opened it and it was massively successful and, you know, it was busier than it should be. I mean, it, the space did not take the people. And were you actually on the on the shop floor? Yeah, so I did tills, Matt did cleaning and it was our way. We didn't have a manager for the first six or eight weeks. And so we were the managers, which in retrospect, I'm so sorry to anyone who came those first six weeks. Like, it was like mayhem it was literal mayhem but we learned so much from being that hands-on at the beginning but anyway within you know two weeks of being open we were like this site doesn't work it's too small it's too pinched this just 
the flow was horrific. You know, anyone who we got a consultant in said, you know, what could we do? And he was like, get another space. <laughs> you know, this will never work. Right. So we found another space, which is the space we have now, which was literally 10 minutes down the road. It's um, just behind Bond Street Tube on Selfridges on a little street called Wayhouse Street. It was perfect for us. It has 60 seats. It's so much bigger. Um, but we still wanted to keep that. We then decided to open another one because really the model needed like six or seven sites to start to really make sense of the kind of central costs. And while that happened, we started working on the products business. And our first product launched into Starbucks and Waitrose and Whole Foods in August of 2016. And that just took off like there was no tomorrow. And as I said, within two years, we've gone into 6,000 stores. We now have our original line, which are energy balls. We have another snacking product, oat bars. We've got cereals and cereals to go. And we've just launched a line of all-natural ready meals. So we've, we've got a lot of different things going on. And basically, we were just being pulled in too many different directions mm-hmm. and that's really what went wrong and you know as we said community is the heart of what Delic- of delicious yellow it's a very personal brand and the problem with having three sites is we had over 70 members of our team we'd gone from one to 70 within basically a year and we were pulled between so many different projects and we just did not have time to onboard everyone properly, to be in all the sites as much as we really needed to be to have that personal touch. Because then someone would visit from Australia as a massive fan and say, oh, where's Ella? And they say, well, you know, she hasn't really been here for three weeks because you're doing 72 different other things. And, you know, you'd have team members start and you don't meet them for three weeks because you're not around. And Mm. it was just that we were just being pulled in too many, too many different directions. And what we realised was we were either going to have to go and raise a lot of money to open these next four or five sites to really start making that business make a lot of sense because our central costs were high. But we we didn't want to dilute. And we were also finding that trying to really genuinely make that a brilliant business and do the products at the same time. Because our products team would say, no, we've got a meeting now with Waitrose tomorrow, you need to be there. So you'd cancel that, something with the deli. And it was just... It was just too many things too mm. quickly. And when looking at them both, it was so evident the scalable part of the model sat in the food products business. So we scaled back to one. It must have been quite a tough decision, wasn't it? Really tough decision. I really dug my heels in. Matt looked at it completely from a numbers point of view. And he said, this is what we have to do. Like, this is just, this is the answer. And I just knew how negative the reception would be. I knew that people would say we were going out of business. And I was so reluctant to have that be the case mm. um but it was what we had to do um, and and you were right there was a real backlash there was a real there? backlash and there was an article where someone had gone on company's house they'd misunderstood our numbers because each site was very very profitable at site level and but they they hadn't even read into any of those numbers because we don't publish them but they'd read into a loan the company had had at the beginning which had gone into funding the entire business. And they wrote, wrote that as a loss. Mm. So then every paper wrote about these losses. Which was £700,000. Yeah, exactly, which was the loan we took into the business to get the business started when we started working together. So there we are being like, Delicious Yellow's the biggest disaster ever. They've lost, yeah, 700 and something thousand pounds. Mm. And that wasn't accurate. But we obviously also were like, if we comment on it, then we need to start saying, well, actually, we're doing X and revenue in that. And mm. we we didn't want to do that. And so... We had to just kind of let it slide. But there was this moment, and, you know, tapping into what we saw earlier, like there was such glee from people that Mm. we were failing. And it was all from women. And even like girlfriends of mine said, you know, their friends texted them being like, oh, my gosh, is it true? Ella's going out of business. And it was like, 
Okay, if we are, that's that would be 70 people that lost their jobs. So that's not a brilliant thing. Like, let's not be rejoicing in that. That's mm. really, really weird to be celebrating people's failure. So that was an interesting experience. But we did. We had to lose 30 jobs, um, which was really tough. The hardest part of it by mile. That being said, now having one and having the space for the products business and to kind of expand the more kind of community media side of what we do, it was the best decision we've ever made. Mm. You've said uh, something along the lines of it's good to fail fast and learn fast. Yeah, I think so. And that's what happened, isn't it? Yeah, but we didn't fail fast enough. You're listening to the Piper podcast, How I Grew My Brand. And today we're with Ella Mills of Deliciously Ella. What I think is so fascinating about about your narrative is how you, your particular, we're getting into American sort of jargon here, your particular journey seems to reflect the kind of larger journey that's going on elsewhere. So your failure, in inverted yeah. commas, with the Delhi sort of seemed to coincide with a, with a broader disenchantment with this idea of clean eating. Yeah. Now, talk to me about clean eating and yeah. what happened with it and why it fell into disrepute, if you like, and what your totally. relationship is with that. That was the most frustrating moment, I think, of Delicious Diella, actually, today. You know, we'd gone from basically healthy eating being like the Atkins diet or kind of vegan vegetarian food was a bit weird, a bit hippie, a lot of roasted peppers and stuffed peppers and things like that. And suddenly there had been this whole movement. I think lots of people like myself had said, you know, I'm not feeling good. I want to change the way I eat. It's got to be another way to eat my broccoli, my aubergines, etc., but what is clean eating? I have no idea. You tell me. No one knows. And that was why it was so frustrating. But you were put in that box, weren't well, you? Well, we were to put in, as the box of the leaders of it, even though we didn't, even though it wasn't terminology that Delicious Yellow had used. It was so frustrating because you were then lumped in with like nine other people, all of which did so many different things in so many different ways. And I think one of the reasons the conversation got so confusing was exactly what you said. What is it? I'm not suggesting everyone becomes a vegan tomorrow, but I think the frustration with these debates came in is that you're then demonizing eating well. Yes, of course, everything needs to be done with sensible moderation. Yes, let's have a really healthy debate about finding a balance, like how do we do more of this without taking it too far? You know, what's affecting our mental health to make us want to take things too far? All very important conversations. Because, and you're, in, and you're touching on that there, it was said, wasn't it, that this idea of clean eating, it, it was a kind of a cover for, for eating disorders. People were saying, I'm well, eating I don't, I healthily, don't. but actually it had turned into something unhealthy in lots of cases. No, I think that's such a generalisation and I think that's exactly what went wrong yeah. with the conversation. If I look at our audience, I would say that's 99.9% of our audience use it because they want to eat better. But that was how the narrative got turned totally, over but the Of course, you know, like eating disorders have always existed and, you know, people would then, of course, tap into things. But an eating disorder is a psychological, you know, issue to do with mental well-being. It's a very serious issue. It's not just about avocados on Instagram. So you came through this very difficult time of the press turning against the whole healthy eating movement that got skewed and you had some difficult decisions to make. So where is the business going? At what stage are you now? Our big focus is the food product space um, because there's a humongous opportunity there, which is really, really exciting. Lots and lots of MPD, lots of things launching next year. Our healthy ready meals is a kind of our big piece of innovation that we've been working on for a long time. Nothing really like it exists. So it's a really exciting step for us as a business. And you've just rebranded, haven't you? Yeah, well, so as we were saying, Dishella kind of started very undeliberately. 
And as a result, we never sat down and said, this is our brand. This is our logo. This is our color palette. You know, these are our illustrations. And everything was a little bit disjointed. You know, any any really successful brand, you know, the best brands ever, like an Apple or a Nike, they have such clear identities. You know, you could see Nike from a mile off and know exactly what it is. And actually, our branding position was, branding project was one of the best lessons I've had. When we started out, we went to lots of different agencies and we really liked this one particular agency, but it felt like maybe they were a bit small, a bit niche, you know, maybe not kind of commercial enough. And we wanted to be, you know, big brand. And so we went with the kind of big brand agency and they're a brilliant agency. They've done lots of brilliant work. They work for massive, massive brands, you know, loads of kind of Unilever brands and things like that. And on day one, I think me and Matt both knew deep down that they weren't right. You know, we had our first meeting and they said, we don't think Delicious Yellow is the right name. Uh-uh. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> oh. Interesting. <laughs> Awkward. Totally. And they gave all the, you know, logical reasons of like, it's too long. Like, Deliciously is too long. There's too many syllables in it. Blah, 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 blah. You know, it's not that ownable. You know, Sainsbury's Isle is called Deliciously Free From. You know, lots of people can play around with it. So from a kind of technical marketing perspective, of course, they're absolutely right. But the problem is, is we created this community of people. We had a media awareness. We had a kind of brand, start of a real brand in this name. And we don't have any budget. So, you know, we don't exactly have the money to do what kind of like Snickers did, turning from Marathon to Snickers. Mm. That's not going to work. And as you said, it's found in personal. And yes, it's a double-edged sword, but the positive edge of the sword is massively outweighs anything else. I just sort of remember sitting there and saying, no, you know, let's just be honest, no. And they kept going with it for quite a while before they finally got that we were just actually not going to What did they think you one. should be called? They never gave us another name, oh. actually, luckily. Um, <laughs> anyway, we said, oh, those aren't quite right. But, you know, you're sitting in the room with these people that have been in their jobs for decades, that have worked with the biggest brands, you know, literally a million miles further away from, you know, mm. more successful than where we are. And so every time you say something and they say, no, this is why it should be this, you kind of think, oh, well, you know, they're probably right. They know more than me. Mm. And we got six months in and the whole thing went in the bin. And we spent money that we didn't have on a project that it's terrible. It looks like we were bought by Unilever or something. You know, it doesn't, there's no connection to the USP of the brand, which is that personal community element. And also where taste is the center of everything we do, none of that. And anyway, and so we moved away, which was a big decision and a great learning of actually like when, yes, you may not be as experienced as some of these people, but you do know the essence and the nuances of your brand better than anyone else ever can do because it is personal and it stems from you and you have that initial vision. And anyway, we went to work for another agency, went to work with another agency and they were brilliant and we're really, really happy with the end result. But and, And it is really nice starting to see it all come together and have that sense of continuity between everything we have like our book that just came out matches our new products matches now the logo of the app and you start to see how this bringing it together and it's also just so much more versatile like you know we never had other assets we could really create because we had no assets to create them from before Mm. so it's exciting and it was definitely a really really worthwhile project how do you fund this where where does the funding for the business come from so initially, it was all self-funded. I mean, my first investment was $20 um, on WordPress for it to be deliciousyellow.com rather than WordPress slash deliciousyellow.com and a camera. And those were my only two investments for the first 
sort of 18 months or so and mm. obviously buying food but I would have bought food anyway to eat it and so that was the blog and social media then from that and living at home and, and I was living at home yeah. exactly and so I was just buying food that I was eating anyway and then photographing it basically mm. so pretty much non-existent for the first 18 months and then from that um, when I started my cooking classes and workshops and things I started to earn money from that that then went into our app and the app as I said, did very, very well, very, very quickly. So that really gave the first like genuine injection of cash into the business. And from that, the book as well did very, very well. So that gave a really big injection of cash. So we took what we'd earned through the book, any kind of commercial things we'd done and the app and took that to fund the first deli and the start of the products business. And it was at that point that we realized then if we wanted to do the next steps, we needed to raise money. We had a very bad um, experience with our first investor, just we were a little bit naive with it and he pushed us into a corner. We walked away from the deal, then started fundraising and we fundraised in April 2016. With private equity or? No, um, a group of strategic investors who held various different jobs basically within kind of FMCG companies Um, and they've been amazing. Just been a really great balance of support when we need it. But we, what we were quite keen to do was get to a point with Delicious Yellow where we were kind of bootstrapping it enough that we really learn where we need money, where we can continue to save money, but also how we wanted to run Delicious Yellow, what we wanted the company culture to be like, the kind of main steps we wanted to take. And we wanted to take investors on at a point in which we'd kind of said, this is how we want to do it. Do you want to be on this journey? Rather than we thought about it on day one before we opened the first deli because we thought, you know, should we open a really big site? And we didn't, as I said, we, you know, because mm. we didn't have a huge amount of money. We opened a very small site. And I remember sitting in those initial meetings and they would ask questions. And the answer was basically like, we don't know. We don't know. You know, we had no idea because we hadn't done it. And actually, I'm really glad that we started smaller and we were able to make lots of mistakes, fail and fail fast at all kinds of different things. And actually, I feel like it helped us shape what we wanted to do rather than at the beginning, we would have inevitably shaped, been shaped by other people because they would have been so much more experienced than us. And we had almost no experience in this space. It's really very difficult if you're inexperienced to know when to take advice and when not to, right? 100%. And everyone has advice for you as well. We've got an amazing team and we really prioritise hiring people with a lot of experience. And so actually, I think our best advice comes internally from people that are really, really connected to it. How many of you run the business on a day-to-day basis? What's it, you all work in one office together? Or yeah, so how got, does it work? Yeah, so we've got one office um, in Soho and then we've got the deli um, just by Knoxville Street and then about a 10-minute walk from each other. We've got just over 40 team members between the two spaces and it's roughly like a half-and-half half split open plan office you know while we're still small enough it's really nice to have everyone have some semblance of involvement in everything that we do you know of course people lead some decisions but you know if we're doing npd for example i'll be working in the kitchen and we'll bring it out so uh, you know our head of finance will try it and she will say you know actually like well i think this or i think that and i really like that and actually it's nice to have that sense of kind of community internally as well as externally. So we're, we're very, very keen on that. I had literally no experience when we started this. Matt had worked in finance and business, in business development in a tech company in LA and loves a good spreadsheet. Brilliant at things like that and the numbers and side of things, as I said, the vision. But, you know, we're both very honest about where we also lacked experience. Neither of us had ever worked in the product space before. Neither of us had ever run a restaurant before. And so we were very keen to kind of put egos to one side and hire people 
who had. So we hired our commercial director from Innocent, our head of supply from Innocent, our head of innovation as well. And we brought on head of finances from Sainsbury's and, you know, people from really, you know, who have a lot more experience in this specific space than we do. Mm. And that has been the best learning of all is Mm. working with them. And how are the decisions made? It's really not just made made by Matt and I. It's like we do run, you know, we do make any final big decisions and any big sign off, but we do work very collaboratively um, as as a team. And do you and Matt normally agree? Yeah, we have a complete, we have an agreement that we made on day one that if we're making a big decision, we both need to be 100% bought into it. If we're not, then we get out. We do really tend to agree, but we do very different things within the business. And I think that's really important. I run all the creative side, so basically anything you see. So whether that is new product ideas, the recipes, the menus, any of our kind of external events, communications, um, all of our social media side of thing, anything basically creative in any shape or form in the branding and packaging, etc. And Matt looks after anything functional. So all things that are actually required to make the business happen. So he oversees the finance team, the operations, supply chain, you know, sourcing, etc. And as a result, although we work very closely together on the big picture and the big issues, on a day-to-day basis, we work pretty separately, which mm. works much better, I think. And give me some figures. You talk about your community. I mean, how many followers do you have on Instagram? Well, Instagram's our biggest platform. So we've got 1.4 million um, followers on Instagram now. And that grows at between five and kind of 8,000 a week at the moment. So it's growing pretty fast. And we get between 12 and 20 million impressions every week on Instagram. Good week's 20, bad week's 12. Yeah. So it's quite a lot. <laughs> and then... Um, the other channels. So we've just launched a podcast um, and that's had over 400,000 downloads already. So that's that's becoming, I think, quite a big platform for us. Facebook's got about 300,000 um, followers. Um, YouTube's got about 200,000 followers. Twitter's about 200,000. Pinterest about four, 500,000. Wow. So it's um, that's, quite that's a, a lot when you put it together. It? And, and then you actually get in, in amongst it, don't you? You've just come yes, back I- from your tour for your new book yes we did 23 events in about six weeks it's nice to again take it from something online to something offline and actually meet real humans rather than just kind of um online instagram handles or twitter handles um and it's you know you learn a lot from it the questions people ask the things they want to know the things that they share with you and it again it really informs decision making because i come back to the office and like everyone asked about this everyone asked about that and it just shows again where the demand is. So we're very lucky, I think, as a business to have that so that when we're making big decisions or strategy, where we're moving to next, it feels like they are. Of course, it's anecdotal to some extent, but you are basing it on some sense of cons- consumer demand rather mm. than just what you want to do. In the olden days, they used to go out, companies used to go and do um, you know, customer research, didn't mm. they? I mean, yours, every day, your customers are coming back at you, aren't they? It's a constant thing. And for that, I think we are so lucky yeah. because it's it's pretty unbelievable you know so we're going to do a new flavor of this what flavor do you want and you'll have ten thousand comments in a day saying i want this flavor so you think okay well that sounds like It'll the do. next thing we should do then <laughs> you know? so so talk you've taken me very neatly actually to talk about the next thing you should do what is the plan where are you going to be in a year where are you going to be in five years i mean the dream basically is to be the kind of largest natural plant-based company um Can I just stop you there? Because you say plant-based rather than vegan. Is that that deliberate? It is deliberate. And I think it's because 
You know, I don't want it to be something that feels all or nothing. There's a lot of reasons why we need to eat more plants. But if you say to someone, you've got to be a vegan, they'll say no. And lots of people will just then walk away. So I'm very keen on something that describes, of course, what it is. And will say, you know, this is a vegan recipe to specifically describe the recipe. But as a concept, for me, plant-based resonates a lot more. Okay, I interrupted you. Talk to um, me about your about what's plans. next. Yeah, so to be the kind of largest company with this space, I mean, I would say probably it would be an outpro at the moment, um, but they're not particularly diverse. They really just operate within plant-based milks. Our plan is to be very diverse and kind of it feels to us and, you know, the different products that we're working on at the moment kind of expand across the entire supermarket and all the... And I know people think that's insane. I know people would be listening being like, that's mad, that will not work. But it feels that there is a space within so many different categories um, for and kind of, I guess, a more modern version of just about everything that already exists. And what about your health now? I mean, do you... And the question I've really wanted to ask you is, what's your vice? To me, that is everything that's wrong with the way that we look at food. You know, people always say, like, what's your guilty pleasure? And I think in looking at it like that, it really summarises the kind of slightly warped view that our society has created on food, which is that, yeah, we do we know we need to eat a little bit better, but if you then want to go and eat a piece of chocolate cake, you should be able to do that without saying this is guilty, you know, because mm. guilty is very, very negative. And as soon as you put those negative elements in, I think you detract from the enjoyment and the positivity of it. So to me, I wouldn't say I have one, not because I don't enjoy chocolate or I don't enjoy things, but because... I think if you're going to have it, you should have it and not see it as a vice or not see it as something negative and something guilt-inducing. You should see it as, I really like this. This is a kind of way of eating in a balanced way for my mind, for my body, rather than seeing it again in that kind of quite black and white way that I think that we often look at food and lifestyle. Final couple of questions. Okay. Best bit of advice you've ever been given and the worst bit of advice you've ever been given? For me, the best piece of advice actually was to be an optimist and I remember when I heard it I was like mm, it doesn't feel like the most important of all things when creating a business but actually I think what I've realized is that that sense of attitude is so important because you do as you just said have those really stressful periods those really difficult periods where you get a big problem and there's a big issue and you think how are we going to deal with this I think you get to the fixing and the solution a lot quicker, a lot more seamlessly and in a lot more inspiring way to your team than when you see it as a kind of all-consuming issue. So I think that more optimistic outlook is really important. And I think also sometimes you need a little bit of naivety in your optimism in order to try something that people have never tried before. Like Matt often says, he's like, I sometimes think everything we're doing is just a giant experiment. You know, like, can we scale a food business with no preservatives, no additives? Like, can we really go into every area of the supermarket doing this? And like, you know, there's nothing in Frozen, basically, that has that at the moment. And, you know, it's taken us 18 months to develop because we couldn't find tin tomatoes on scale that didn't have preservatives in, for example. So I think that sense of optimism is really important because you need that to be able to find the solution that other people haven't found in order to make yourself different and in order to get through challenging times, which are inevitable in any business. And I think the worst piece of advice is taking too much advice, actually not being able to trust yourself because you're so busy listening to what everyone else thinks you should do that you stop listening to what you think you should do and you lose that kind of internal compass and actually I think that is a really important thing mm, so far so good yeah well <laughs> so it feels it today but it's definitely been bumpy Ella Mills it's been really really interesting talking to you thank, thank you, you so very much. much my pleasure